We read scripture from Isaiah 53. We turn to the book of Isaiah, chapter 53. We read this in accordance with Lord's Day 15, which speaks of the suffering of our Savior. We hear the inspired word of God. Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin... He shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul, and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. We read God's word that far. May God bless it to our hearts. On the basis of Isaiah 53, as well as many other passages, some of which will make reference, we have the teaching of Lord's Day 15. Question and answers 37, 38, and 39. It's found in the back of our Psalters on page 9. Question 37. What dost thou understand by the words he suffered? That he, all the time that he lived on earth, but especially at the end of his life, sustained in body and soul the wrath of God against the sins of all mankind. 
that so by his passion as the only propitiatory sacrifice, he might redeem our body and soul from everlasting damnation and obtain for us the favor of God, righteousness, and eternal life. Why did he suffer under Pontius Pilate as judge? That he, being innocent and yet condemned by a temporal judge, might thereby free us from the severe judgment of God to which we were exposed. Is there anything more in his being crucified than if he had died some other death? Yes, there is. For thereby I am assured that he took on him the curse which lay on me, for the death of the cross was a curse of God. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, it's as though this Lord's Day is saying to us, do you realize what is involved when you confess he suffered? When you take those lips upon those words upon your lips, as we recite the Apostles' Creed, he suffered and died. Do you realize what it is that you're saying? It's easy for us to recite it so quickly and to give little thought to these little words. There's so much suffering in the world. Suffering because of war, suffering because of famine and starvation, because of natural disasters, suffering due to death and loneliness and persecution. No one can begin to grasp all the suffering that's taking place in the world today. When we hear about it, we read about it, we realize that that's only a small aspect of all of the suffering that's taking place. And when we endure suffering, we realize also that our suffering is yet so small in comparison to what others are going through. And there's so many ways yet in which we have it so good compared to others. Those who themselves suffer and who know intense suffering have a bit of an idea as to the meaning and the significance of this term. Now, as Jesus is referenced with regard to his suffering, it's important for us to note he's not being referenced among other individuals who suffer. He is the suffering man. He is the only one who suffered as he suffered. And his suffering then is set forth as that which is unique. No other human ever suffered or ever will suffer like unto that which our Lord suffered. His suffering was not only far more severe, but it was unique. It was unique because his suffering was substitutionary suffering. He took all the guilt upon himself that his people deserved. And we're never fully going to understand the depths of that suffering. The fact that he took upon himself all the guilt, all the shame, all the punishment for my sin, not only, but for the sins of all of his people. We're never fully going to fathom the extent of that. But the catechism is helping us enter into it so that we can see how blessed we are. So that we can see the wonder and reality of our deliverance. And so that we give all glory to our God. And find our glory in the cross alone. Those for whom Christ came and died are blessed beyond measure. 
They will walk in the light of God's countenance. They will rejoice in the name of God all the days of their lives to all eternity. In His righteousness, they will be exalted. It's because of this suffering that we look at this evening that we're able to keep the Lord's Day holy. It's because of this suffering that we're able to celebrate the wonder of the first day of the week as the resurrection. It's because of this suffering that we know peace and contentment in our lives. It's because of this suffering that we are able to know joy. We look at the amazing suffering of Jesus, noting that it's amazing in character. It's amazing in its purpose. And it's amazing in its fruit. First of all, with regard to its character, as we stated, no man ever suffered like our Lord. Isaiah 53 prophesied concerning that suffering. And Isaiah 53 already made very clear, prophesying his suffering, that Jesus' suffering was substitutionary. It was in our place. That's verse 5. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. With his stripes, we are healed. It was in our place. He went as our substitute. He made payment. And that's the emphasis there of that last phrase. With his stripes, we are healed. His suffering wasn't such that it didn't accomplish anything. It accomplished a wonder. We are healed. Finally, his suffering is set forth here in Isaiah 53 as voluntary. He didn't have to do this. This is the expression of his love. This is what he did for us out of love for us. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He's brought as a lamb to the slaughter. He allowed himself to be brought. He willingly subjected himself for us and for our salvation. Now what is it that he suffered? He suffered God's reaction to sin and unrighteousness. God is perfect. God is holy. And God's holiness and righteousness are precious to himself. God loves himself as the highest good. And anything that's contrary to that is worthy of God's wrath. Man, as God's creation, fell into sin. And as such became the object then of the wrath of God. God called man to love him, to seek him with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength. Man forsook him, turned against the Holy One, rebelled against him, ignores him, tramples underfoot his goodness, his righteousness, and his holiness. And God reacts against that rebellious sinner in anger. God pursues that sinner. He pursues that sinner in wrath, relentlessly. God gives no peace. Cast that sinner into troubles, into struggles, into sorrow. And God causes suffering. He causes darkness and fear and terror and agony and pain to be part of the life of those who continue unrepentantly in sin. And ultimately, God casts them into everlasting destruction. The darkness of hell and its desolation. This expression of wrath, the pain, the agony, the suffering, the fear, the terror, Jesus experienced. He took it upon himself. His suffering wasn't just sickness. It wasn't physical. It wasn't even death. He died quickly. 
He didn't suffer much with regard to his death, not as long as some anyway have suffered. But his suffering was due to the wrath of God against the sins of those whom he represented. Now there's a mighty paradox and a wonder that's associated with the cross. At the moment when Jesus experienced the most intense pain and sorrow, during especially that three-hour period of darkness, when he endured the horror of hell, he was also most obedient. He was most godly. At the moment when God was most pleased with him for his obedience, Jesus Christ also experienced the terror of being forsaken by that God. My God, my God was his cry. But this paradox is the reason why there's also an answer to that cry. In the hell of sinners, there's no questioning. They know why they're there, and they know that they deserve it. But the suffering Son of God, obedient and yet forsaken, has a question. My God, my God, why me? Why hast thou forsaken me? And the answer is, it is finished. He accomplished it. God received it. Now the intense suffering that Jesus experienced, He sustained. That's important that the Catechism puts it that way as well. He didn't just experience this intense punishment. He sustained it. He willingly stood up before it and He survived it. He prevailed. He was never purely passive. He was active as he actively submitted to and as he actively took upon himself the wrath of God to fulfill the justice of God against the sins of those whom he represented. And he bore that wrath perfectly to the end. Endured it patiently, willingly, even unto death and hell. That's the emphasis here of Isaiah 53 and what the Catechism now is laying out as pertains to what does it mean that Jesus suffered. Now for us, suffering alternates with joy so that we have some difficult, challenging days, but then God lifts us and gives us some joyful days. From the passage here, that was not the case with regard to Jesus. His suffering was a life sentence. Verse 3 states that he was a man of sorrows. It's hard for us to embrace what that had to mean. In other words, this intense wrath that he deserved because of the sins of his people never left him. All his life long, he bore this burden and this reality. So that his suffering was a life sentence. And what's significant in that regard is we never read in the Bible about Jesus laughing. We do read more than once that he wept. For us, weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. Psalm 30, verse 5. The impression we get is that was not the case for Jesus Christ. Weeping stays. His whole life is night, as he knew the purpose for which he had come. And he set his face as a flint upon Jerusalem, knowing this is what I need to endure. Never any relief from day to day. Always that burden, that knowledge. Never thinking that tomorrow is going to be different because tomorrow 
That same burden yet was there. Jesus Christ experienced what to us is incomprehensible. He bore the weight of the wrath of God against the sins of those whom he represented his whole life long. And there was no relief until the debt was paid. It is finished. Then the weight is lifted. Now the weight of that suffering comes out in the words of the Catechism when in question 37, it states that he, all the time that he lived on earth, but especially at the end of his life, sustained in body and soul the wrath of God against the sins of all mankind. Now it's important that we understand what that phrase all mankind is referring to. The authors are not here teaching the heresy of universal redemption. The idea that Jesus died for everyone and therefore everyone is delivered from their sin. The sins of all men, women and children who've ever lived have been paid for. Jesus did not atone for the sins of every man, woman and child head for head. The Bible makes very clear Jesus laid down his life for his sheep. And that Jesus made himself very clear throughout his ministry. He did not come to lay down his life for all men. He laid down his life for some. The atonement was particular. It was for those whom the Father had given him, those whom he identifies as his sheep. The doctrine of universal atonement is an abomination to the Scriptures and to the glory of God. It denies God's eternal decree of election for certain persons by grace alone. It denies the wonder of God's covenant relationship with his people in Jesus Christ alone. It destroys God's mercy, God's justice. The lie of universalism corrupts the holy blood of Christ by claiming that holy blood was shed for men like Cain, Esau, Judas. There are two different camps. Some take it from the perspective that Jesus died for all and everybody goes to heaven. There is no hell. Those are the consistent ones. But we understand the Bible clearly teaches different. Clearly teaches there are those who are the reprobate. Those who are the goats over against the sheep. So others insist then that Jesus' blood was shed for all, but then the power of it is determined upon man. Whether man accepts it, whether man makes a decision, whether man is faithful enough. So that Jesus laid his life down for a man, but then that man ends up going to hell because of his faithlessness. The blood of Jesus Christ then shed for that one in vain. The payment for sin made, and yet that person goes to hell. That's a travesty of the justice and mercy of God. Universal atonement teaches a different God than the God of scriptures. What then here are the authors teaching when they emphasize that Jesus sustained in body and soul the wrath of God against the sins of all mankind? First of all, it's teaching this, that Jesus bore the wrath of God against the sins of all mankind in this sense that his death was sufficient to pay for the sins of all mankind. No one can argue and say, but Jesus' death was not enough. Jesus' death was not sufficient. We look at our own sins, and there are times when we wrestle with that. We think, my sins are so great. 
How could Jesus' payment really be sufficient? I know who I am, and I know what I did. And the Bible emphasizes Jesus' payment was so great that it was sufficient for the sins of all. That's the point of the canons of Dora. In the second, in, in the second head, Article 3, we read there, the death of the Son of God is the only and most perfect sacrifice and satisfaction for sin and is of infinite worth and value, abundantly sufficient to expiate, to cover the sins of the whole world. The Arminians accused the Reformed of minimizing the importance of the death of Christ. And the Reformed said, no, in no way are we minimizing the wonder of Christ's sacrifice and the power of it. You're the ones that minimize it by saying, people for whom he died go to hell. We emphasize his death was sufficient that should God have ordained or determined it, indeed, all could have been saved. But that merely teaches the limitless nature of his death from the point of view of its power. Isaiah 53 is very clear with regard to for whom this death was made. Notice the emphasis throughout Isaiah 53. Very personal for us, for me. Throughout, he is despised, a man of sorrows. He hath borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. With his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And note, the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. So it's very clear. The apostle, or the writer, is writing to God's people in the context of the struggles and challenges of life and referencing the fact that this one is given to the church. He's given to the saints. The emphasis then has to do with understanding mankind not in terms of every man, woman, and child, but in an organic sense. And that's the way the Bible often speaks of the human race in terms of the fact that Jesus came to save mankind. And included in mankind that is not every man, woman, and child, but it's only the redeemed mankind. Those are the elect. They constitute the true humanity. The Bible speaks in that regard of the human race like a tree or like a vine. And by faith, all men are joined to Christ. John 15 talks about the fact that if a branch doesn't produce fruit, it's cut off. It's pruned from that true human race. Teaching that salvation isn't a repair job. God doesn't save a few leftover individuals here, a few over there. He's saving a whole. And it's a complete unit that has to do with an organic whole. All mankind, all of the elect. And he saves the human race then. He saves the world as that world is comprised of his own. The references to world and to mankind and to all in that regard reflect that idea. Jesus was sent into the world to save the redeemed humanity, the redeemed creation. And the unregenerate wicked are not part of that world. They're not part of that mankind. They're not worthy to be part of the human race. They're cast off and they're sent to hell. We've used the analogy before. God looking at 
the world as the world of his own. Just as a farmer looks at his field. It's a cornfield, even though it's full of weeds. He doesn't say, that's my weed and cornfield. That's my cornfield. He views it from the perspective of the true fruit, which is the corn. And so it is. God looks upon the world, and he views the world in terms of his elect. They constitute the true mankind. In this way, Jesus bore the sins against all his people, all mankind. For the elect alone, he died. For his sheep, the ones whom his father had given him, he laid down his life. They were and they are that mankind in the true spiritual sense. When Jesus comes back on the clouds of heaven, he will establish a new heaven and a new earth in which will dwell all redeemed mankind. The whole human race in terms of that great tree that's matured and developed, rooted in Jesus Christ. Not all men, not all women, but the whole of the redeemed as they constitute that body of the elect. Lord's Day 7, question and answer 20, confirms very clearly this teaching. Are all men then, as they perished in Adam, saved by Christ? No. Only those who are engrafted into him and receive all his benefits by a true faith. Now, Jesus' suffering was unique in many ways. He bore the wrath of God against sin. You and I never will have to do that by God's grace. He bore that wrath as the perfect Son of God. He was pure. He was innocent in every regard. He who knew no sin, who dwelt in the bosom of the Father, experienced that wrath because he took our guilt and our shame upon himself. We could say, secondly, Jesus bore that wrath alone. Natural fallen man bears that wrath along with the rest of the elect, rest of the wicked. In hell, they will perish with a number of others who share with them that judgment. When you and I suffer, we can turn to one another. We turn to God. We cry out in prayer. Jesus stood alone under the wrath of God. He was the only one proclaimed guilty for the sake of the sins of his people. And that was very really conveyed as his disciples fled and as he was left alone. There was no one to whom he could turn in his sorrow. Jesus suffered as very God and very man. The paradox that surrounds his suffering makes it unique in that regard. He was God, and yet he must suffer at the hands of God. He was a holy man, and yet he had to suffer what a sinful man would suffer. Finally, he had to suffer under Pontius Pilate. The Catechism makes specific reference to that in question 38. Why did he suffer under Pontius Pilate as judge? That he, being innocent and yet condemned by a temporal judge, might thereby free us from the severe judgment of God to which we were exposed. God used the judgment of Pilate for two things. First of all, to declare Jesus' innocence. Pilate made clear, this one is innocent. He wrote it on the inscription above the cross. He testified to those around him, to the Jews, this man is not guilty. I found no fault in him. He declared him innocent. But then secondly, what did Pilate do? He condemned the innocent one to death. 
Pilate's judgment was a judgment of the wicked on the Son of God. The wicked declare, we don't want him. It's true we can't find fault with him, but we still don't want him. And they cast him off. And to all generations, Pilate's name is immortalized, but not with honor. To all generations, Pilate is branded as the one who condemned an innocent man to death. And he did it as the judge of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire prided themselves in right justice. And yet, he was condemned by Pontius Pilate. Now also with regard to purpose, Jesus' suffering is amazing, remarkable. His suffering was because he took the guilt of sin upon himself. That comes out again clearly out of Isaiah 53. We read in verse 4 that he bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. In verse 5, he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. He took what we deserved upon himself so that the guilt, the shame of our sin was transferred to him. Now, Romans 5, verse 12 speaks of that in connection with the second Adam and the experience of the second Adam. That Jesus Christ, as the second Adam then, experienced that reality. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. For unto the law sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even those that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression. Adam's sin is passed on to the whole human race. And Jesus now, as a second Adam, takes upon himself that sin. He became the representative head of the redeemed human race. And he came to reconcile his people to God. He took our sin, our corruption upon himself. His life, his death was in our stead and on our behalf. All the sin that Adam had committed and all the sin we committed in Adam now placed on the second Adam. Now we remember when Adam fell into sin, we classify that original sin as having two parts. Original sin is comprised of original guilt and original pollution. Jesus took upon himself the guilt, the pollution that we deserve. And he had to suffer because of our guilt. Now he escaped that guilt, as we noted, by being born of a virgin. He didn't have a human person. Guilt is passed through the person. He escaped that original pollution because he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of a virgin. But willingly now, he takes that upon himself. And the suffering of Jesus then involves an atoning sacrifice, one that paid for sin. Now, in order to understand that a bit, we need to understand what it means that Jesus entered into our state. We make a distinction between one's state and one's condition. By state, we mean the legal position as determined by a judge. While condition has to do with one's being. If someone enters into the United States as a foreigner, their status is such 
that they now are an immigrant. They're a non-citizen. They're not privileged to the right to vote and other privileges. While their condition remains the same. We are sinners as to our state and our condition. As to our state, we stand before God as those that are guilty. As to our condition, we are depraved. We are sinners. Our natures are such that they're given over to sin. Now we stand before God then corrupt as to our state, guilty, and our condition, corruption. Jesus entered into our state, but not into our ethical corruption. He took upon himself our state. That is, he took upon himself our guilt. He who was innocent, he who was righteous, now became guilty in our place. He who was above the law placed himself under the law and said, I am now guilty. His condition remained unchanged. He's the holy, righteous Son of God. And that distinction helps us understand a bit the profound mystery of our redemption and the reconciliation that Jesus accomplished through his suffering. He entered into our state of guilt, maintaining the condition of the holy and righteous one. And as such then was able to remove that guilt through his perfect sacrifice. All the liability for our sin was placed on him as the second Adam. Just as Adam sinned, now the second Adam took upon himself that guilt. But what the first Adam could not do, the second Adam accomplished. And Jesus accomplished redemption. He changes our state. So that now, we who are found in him are no longer guilty. We're declared righteous in Jesus Christ. And that's the wonder of our justification. We are declared righteous. Our status now, our state before God, is that of those who are innocent. And God looks upon us then as those who have never had or committed any sin. What a marvelous wonder. Our condition yet remains depraved for a time. As God goes to work by His Spirit, sanctifying, but that condition is not going to be transformed until the moment of our death when we're translated into glory. Our state transformed by the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ who entered into our state in order that He might take that guilt upon Himself and declare us innocent. And this was possible only because God ordained Jesus Christ to be our representative head. We could not, we would not have chosen Christ as our representative head. Jesus was ordained as the head of the covenant. God gave him to us. And we've noted that. We could never have picked him. We would never have chosen him. We could never have come up with a savior who could stand in our place and represent us. But God ordained and God gave us Jesus Christ as head. And by and for Jesus Christ, God accomplished this wonder of atonement. He was the eternal Son of God, able to submit to suffering and sorrow for our sake, able to do it sinlessly, and able to bear it, even through hell. 
The amazing purpose then is to reconcile those whom the Father has given to the Father. So that those who are alienated, those who are guilty, now are declared righteous, declared innocent, and brought into communion and fellowship with the Father. Jesus bore the wrath of God in order to bring us into that communion and fellowship with the living God. Now the fact that Jesus bore the wrath of God, does that mean that God was angry with Jesus Christ? Here again is the mystery as we try to understand with our finite minds the suffering that our Lord endured. God was not angry with His Son. At His baptism, again at His transfiguration, what did God say? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And God, we know, is an unchangeable God. God loved His own Son. He was well pleased with His Son. At the same moment, at the same time, there was that moment when Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The best way for us to understand it is that Jesus bore the expression of the wrath of God against the sins of others. He bore the expression of God's wrath against my sin, against your sin. He bore the agonies of soul and body that were expressions of that wrath. And the expressions of that wrath showed itself in sorrow and misery and suffering, pain, terror, fear, and hell itself. And yet all the while, beloved of His heavenly Father. And that's again the mystery of the cross. At the time when Jesus' sorrow was the deepest, most perfect was His love. And when that love was at its fullest, He experienced the terror of being forsaken by His Father. Why me? was the question that cried out. And again, there's no question that cries out from hell, from sinners. They know the wrath of God. and They know that they deserve it. But Jesus could still say, My God! My God! And he could still ask the question because he knew he did not deserve it. And the answer was, it is finished. God had received that payment, that sacrifice. And Jesus sustained it. Not only that he offered it, not only that he suffered it willingly, lovingly, but that he sustained it. And the significance of that is this. The payment was made. The payment is accomplished. There is therefore now no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus. The guilt of sin is removed by His act of perfect love. We are justified. We are declared righteous. Because Jesus suffered and atoned willingly. Active in that suffering. Active in the love with which He loved us. And actively bearing that wrath for us and in our place. And beloved, the fruit then is amazing for us as God's children. Set us free from everlasting damnation. Jesus' suffering frees us from everlasting damnation. God's wrath works destruction. It works desolation. And none can stand beneath the wrath of God. The famous sermon of Jonathan Edwards made this well-known. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. That's who and what we are by nature. Sinners who stand before an angry God. And Jonathan Edwards used the 
powerful and well-known illustration of a spider suspended by a delicate web over a fire. As we, suspended over hell by this delicate web. And we are encouraging the fire. We're feeding the fires of sin in our lives. God's wrath against sin and rebellion is certain. God is going to punish that sin. God is going to destroy sin. And that sin must be punished because it's a violation of God's holiness and righteousness. What sinner can stand before the wrath of God and survive? None. No sinner can stand before the holiness and righteousness of God and live. God demands payment. And that payment is His demand of obedience and thankfulness all our days. You can't make that. I can't make it. But Jesus made that payment in our place. And He redeemed us. He freed us from the wrath of God. His sacrifice was propitiatory. That is, it took the place of. It was a substitute for our sins. He stood where I deserved to stand. And He took upon Himself the full wrath that I deserved. And by His grace now, I fall on my hands and my knees and I repent. I cry out for mercy and I confess the wonder of that act of love. I am forgiven. Payment has been made. I will never experience the wrath of God against sin as it culminates in hell because my Lord suffered in my place. And God works the faith by which we confess this as my personal experience. Again, we make then, by faith, Isaiah 53, our personal confession. He was wounded for my transgressions. He was bruised for my iniquities. And... With his stripes, I am healed. Jesus' suffering results in eternal life. The Catechism teaches three things. The favor of God, righteousness, and eternal life. God's favor is that he opens our eyes to the preciousness of Jesus Christ. He opens our eyes to our sin and causes us to see the horror of our sin and the wonder of Christ. Righteousness is that by faith in Him, He gives us to know freedom from the guilt and the shame of sin. We are righteous in Christ. And eternal life is the crown on that work. The content of these three words is to cause rejoicing and joy toward Him who wept in our place. God's favor and God's love work life. Now I know life, a life that's eternal, a life that's spiritual, a life that's heavenly. And Jesus' merit is such that he bestows that life on me and on you. The work of salvation in our hearts, testifying to us of that joy and the assurance of the Holy Spirit, confirming in our hearts, Abba, Father, God is your Father. You are his Son. You have fellowship with Him on the basis of the perfect work of Jesus Christ. Beloved, this fruit is yours and mine by faith. The Catechism says, I am assured that He took on Him the curse which lay on me. He did this for me. And He did it entirely. He did it perfectly. 
When I was baptized, He called me personally by my name. And He gives me to know by faith the wonder of that baptism. I'm washed. I'm cleansed. My sins have been paid for. He accomplished the reality of that baptism on Calvary. And by faith, I lay hold upon the reality of which my baptism was a picture. And on that is found my assurance. Not on my prayers, not on the strength of my faith, but on God's work of grace and God's promise in Jesus Christ, which is eternally sure and secure. And by faith, we embrace Jesus Christ as my Savior, my Lord. And we know the joy that is ours in Him. Is it no wonder that Paul said, my glorying is in the cross of Jesus Christ? Beloved, that's our glorying. And as the confession so beautifully set forth, especially the Belgic confession in that regard, wherefore we justly say with the Apostle Paul that we know nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And we count all things but loss and dung for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus our Lord, in whose wounds we find all manner of consolation. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, we thank Thee for working in our hearts that which is worthy of all praise and all glory. Thou hast given unto us something in which to glory the cross of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and the suffering that He took upon Himself. And may we look to the cross in the midst of our sorrow, in the midst of our guilt and shame and sin. And may we know the wonder of wonders that our Lord took upon Himself the full wrath that I deserved in order that I might know righteousness and peace and life everlasting. Amen.